Well, hello everybody. Welcome to the mailbag. My name is Marcus Speller. Joining me on the mailbag today is Andy Brassel. It's just the two of us, Andy. We're recording from home. We we will make it if we try. <laughs> Um, well, of course, the, you know, the, the, the times are still uh, a trying and difficult and all that kind of stuff, which is why we are recording from home. But but we're going to bring you a bloody good mailbag, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to keep you entertained for the next sort of half an hour or so, because that's what we need in these boring times in which we're all we're all sort of indoors and so on. And I know there's a much wider concern, but we're going to talk about football. And uh, and you've been uh, you've been greasing my palm with some of your questions. I appreciate that, especially you lovely lot on the Discord app. Um, so yes, again, and thank you so much, everybody, for, for getting involved in, in in the Patreon. You know, we really do appreciate that. It's um, it's it's very uh, cockle warming, as as I often say. So Andy, we're going to kick off with this one from Max Raymond, who who says this: Why do you think La Liga has been a bit poor this year? Even with Getafe's heroics, it's been really underwhelming to watch. I would agree with Max. It's not been the greatest year in La Liga, and I think the explanation is a fairly simple one simply that so many sides are are in a state of flux at the moment and we start of course with um barcelona and real madrid i mean Mm. given everything that barcelona have been through this season in terms of um signings not settling Mm. uh in terms of coaching change in terms of everything else that's been going on at the club upstairs um starting with the not getting the Neymar re-signing over the line, um, having to make pennies on the pound with Felipe Coutinho by sending him out on loan, on a loan move that's very unlikely to become a, a, a permanent move, um, and the continued injuries to Usman Dembele, which means that um, two absolutely enormous signings for the club are massive deadweights, yet they are still top of the table which yeah. is remarkable in a way. Um, you've got the second spell of Zinedine Zidane at, at Real Madrid, which has had some moments where it's looked like it's going well um, just before um, the, the, the season ground to a halt. Um, they're in a bit of a hole. The The Classico win was um, a rare win in um, between the, the, the loss to Manchester City in the Champions League. And in a La Liga context, which I guess is what Max is driving at, dropping points, against the likes of Levante, Celta Vigo, um, which is pretty inexcusable for for, for them at, at home at the Bernabeu. Um, and the, the fact that they're still trying to make this team a little bit younger. Now, to an extent, I think we can feel that they're a little bit further a, along the line with that than um, uh, Barcelona are, simply because mm. Fede Valverde has been one of the players of, of, of this season. He's mm-hmm. been absolutely terrific. But then again, if you look at Real Madrid uh, last time out when they lost at, at Betis, they started with the um, Casemiro, Modric, Kroos midfield that I think all of us have said, and we've certainly said plenty of times on OTC this season, um, mm-hmm. has become obsolete, really. And it's ridiculous. To, to say it out loud, it feels ridiculous to say it out loud for a midfield They've three that's been on their so brilliant. They're just too old. Uh, I, yeah. I just don't think there's the mobility there anymore. Mm. And um, uh, Casemiro, it's a shame when it happens. It's a shame when you have to say, oh, "I don't like to say this about such a great midfield," but you know, it's what happens when you stay too long at the fair, Andy. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? I think you can, whether it be player, team, manager, coach, whoever, no dynasty can go on indefinitely. Nothing continues forever. You know, everyone has um, their their time at the top and that time at the top eventually comes to an end, um, sure. especially with the unique demands of, of elite level. And, you know, I think we've seen that gradually with, with Luka Modric, for example. But then I think you look around down the, the rest of La Liga and, you know, it's, it's not just the top two. You know, Atletico have had such a, a profound... They've been very poor period of change well yeah they have but then again they've they've had to change what six members of the first team i mean well okay at sorry level that's when unprecedented been, when i say they've been very poor i mean that the goal scoring 31 goals from 27 games i think you know that the, the lowest score is by some distance in in the top nine in fact most other sides in the league have scored more yeah okay they've only conceded 21 but you you, off, you made a point last season about Atletico Madrid with some of the attacking talent they have, and and Klopp said that as well. Now I understand Klopp said that in light of a uh, you know after an evening in which he can't believe his side were beaten by them and knocked out the Champions League. But I, I do I did feel that we were going to have a little bit more from Atletico because you know at current standings they're sixths, and you wouldn't bank on them finishing in the top four. I didn't think they would be challenging for the title for the reasons that you just said, but. I, I do feel they've been slightly underperforming, though. Yeah, I mean, the other thing we have to say is that whilst being sixth, they're they're two points off third. Um, I think what they will look back on this season as perhaps is, or, or actually, not not people within Atletico will look back on this season as, but lots of people who watch Atletico on a regular basis will look on this as as a bit of a missed opportunity this season because there has been this state of flux with Barcelona and Real Madrid and because they've underperformed yeah. compared to Maybe that's what, what we I'm expect of them. Yeah, yeah I, th- I, th- I think that's it really, Marcus, because when D- Diego Simeone has always professed this as being a, a season of transition and it's, it's proved to be exactly that. Um, if if you look at the XGs, if that's your your bag, if you go back um, to Christmas, that they if, if you go via XG, they, they should have been top of the table so yeah. they they weren't a, a million miles away so certainly in terms of, of of what they were um what they were creating mm-hmm. but um I, I just think because we've been so spoiled by atletico in the simeone era and because there's this perceived and quite real weakness to barcelona and real madrid this season mm-hmm. it's put pressure on atletico that never should have been there you know that, that they never should have been going into this season thinking Oh yeah, we can we can win the title because it's it's way too soon, and you know they are undertaking this period of, of of profound change. So that's put a bit of extra pressure on them that maybe shouldn't have been there. But then again, if you look at elsewhere in the league, look at Sevilla, who through most yeah. of this season under Julen Lopetegui, they've been going into games with six, seven new starters who weren't at the club this season. Mm-hmm. So for them to be in third place, and as I say, I appreciate is very close at the moment between third and sixth for Sevilla to be in third place is a pretty remarkable achievement. And Lopetegui, I mean, he was praised in recent days um, by Monchi, the sporting director for having done a terrific job. And, you know, let's be clear, the jury is really out on Lopetegui in terms of his ability as a a club coach. Uh, So he's done a, he's done a tremendous job really, but 
to cut back to Max's original question, yet so many of these teams are in a state of flux. It's, it's, it's really mm-hmm. tough for them. I think you could extrapolate that and talk about um, a lot of big teams in Europe about uh, being in that place as well. Uh, Paris Saint-Germain have tried to evolve this season. Um, Bayern are moving on from an older generation mm-hmm. to a slightly younger one post-Robin and Ribery. So I don't think it's unique in La Liga. I, I think it's something that goes out wider into European football. Yeah, but and, and what's a, a, a real shame, other than the obvious, about the football that's been cancelled is looks like we might miss out certainly temporarily on that Copa del Rey final between Real Sociedad and Athletic Bilbao because there was such excitement and hype around that, understandably so. And it was going to be such a great occasion and hopefully we won't be robbed of that, that they'll find another time to play that game. Yeah, what a season this could still be eventually for yeah. for Real Sociedad. It's been an unbelievable season so far, as you say, getting to the final of the, the, the Copa del Rey. And, and against Athletic Bilbao as well. Exactly, exactly. It's absolutely huge. Um, it's something brilliant for for Basque football and sort of brings back <laughs> memories of, of of the eighties when those those clubs were mm-hmm. were league winners. But um, yeah, it's something that atmospherically would be brilliant. I think you look at Real Sociedad and not just because of where they are in the league, but because of the sort of football they've played. They, I think, are the big winners from the the league season so far because. If you look at how much have entertained us, if you look at where they are as a club and um, the, the, what they've done to the Anoeta, the stadium has, has been incredible. Of course, it had this big superfluous running track, which was just, I think they used it twice in the in the first 20 years that they had it, which was absolutely ludicrous. But, you know, it the, now they've brought the stands in the atmosphere there is is something different. And I was last there probably about a year ago and they, they mm-hmm. were still constructing it and it was it was a dump. Yeah. But, it, it, you know, you've got to go there to come back and they've really got to a really great place with the, the, the stadium. And, you know, they've got that atmosphere in the ground that, that they lacked. And obviously with their rivals, San Mames is, is thought of as being perhaps the most atmospheric stadium in Spain and now mm-hmm. Real Sociedad have closed the gap a little bit to them which will mean a lot as well absolutely uh, Max also asks any recommendations from Andy for classic European League Cup matches to watch people are bored Andy <laughs> want to watch some sort of football I was given, <laughs> I was given a few recommendations out on uh, on Speller Time on my vlog what? Go on, well, you, know, you know what you know yeah. what Marcus I'm, yes. I'm not gonna like get them all out there now because we're all going to be indoors for a while, so let's just give away a couple at a time. The ones that immediately sprung to mind for me, yeah. um, the the most exciting match, not necessarily the best match, but the most exciting match I think I've ever been to was uh, Monaco 8, Deportivo 3. Oh, I remember was, that. Uh, in no- November 2003 yeah. in uh, the, the Champions League. And that was the season where Didier Deschamps got um, Monaco all the way to the final. And, um, you know, they they, they could have been headed for a a glorious cup, uh, sorry, Champions League um, league double there. Um, But they let go a nine-point lead go at the top of sort of like, you know, Principality, Newcastle United as well that season. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. But they played some some brilliant football and um, Dado Perso scored four goals in that. I mean, I remember walking away from the stadium thinking, you know, what actually 
happen there that's that's a really good watch well worth it Uh Um, i'm not sure that i've just had a quick look i can't find it immediately on youtube that game um there are highlights of course but that monaco side that year were obviously very very good and what is on line is the um is the final where they they played um uh, porto of course so you can you can watch that game but also there is yeah, and and the the quarterfinal they played against Real Madrid uh, seems to be online as well, which was uh, oh yeah, was that was that was that was brilliant. The the Fernando Morientes quarterfinal, um, <laughs> of course, it, he was he was on loan there and and, and knocked the club that count the Champions League as as being their trophy uh, out of the competition. Never quite went the same for him at the Bernabeu <laughs> after that. Uh, funnily enough, the other one that I would I would recommend. Um, that maybe um, springs less to mind for for some people, and I've I've looked. You can you can find it on on there. Um, is Dortmund three Schalke three from mm. September two thousand and eight? Now that would have been Jurgen Klopp's, I don't know, second home game in charge of of Dortmund, and okay. um, obviously he he did a lot to ingratiate himself to the supporters when he arrived. He met supporters groups and was super friendly. Um, mm-hmm. And they were 3-0 down at home to Schalke, which would be a really good way of getting rid of a lot of that goodwill. But then yeah. they came back with a couple of goals from Alex Fry, a very different situation for Dortmund, very different Dortmund team, but super exciting. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice one. You see, I, uh, on my vlog, Andy, I recommended... Barcelona 5, Real Madrid 0, El Brasico, because I actually watched that around your old flat, didn't I, in South London with all yeah, the Yeah, yeah, all, all the Ramble did. It was all of us, wasn't it? That's right, yeah, yeah. But that game's online, that, that full game's online. And I said that it was probably peak Barcelona under Pep. Uh, that, That's the that, best that. individual performance that I can think of by a club team off the, the, the top of my head. The only yeah. comparable thing I can think of would be um, from the European Cup semi-final in eighty nine. Second leg between um, Milan and Real Madrid. Milan five, Real Madrid nil, oh. and that it, that is an incredible Milan team. Really yeah. incredible Milan team. Um, uh-huh. Van Basten, Ancelotti, Hullet, etc., etc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, Andy, one of the other games I chose: England three, Argentina two in Geneva ahead of the World Cup in two thousand and six. <laughs> you remember that one? Uh, no. <laughs> you must remember that one, surely. I'm going to say no because I know how much it's going to irritate you. <laughs> All right, okay. It was a good game, though. You can't deny, Andy. You cannot deny. That was peak Sven's England. Um, all right, let's move on then. Uh, Phenomenal Paddy J says, in a similar vein to match recommendations, what's your favourite football book, Andy? And don't choose your own so one. So many. So many. Um, I think the... Give your own one a plug. Go on, you just mentioned the... Monaco in 2004. Oh, all or nothing. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, it was the season in the life of the Champions League in 2003, 2004. Absolutely. But, and it's, of course, it's got that brilliant picture on the front of Jose Mourinho kissing the European Cup, or as a lot of people put it more accurately, his own reflection. But, um, <laughs> you watch uh, the games, read the book. Andy Brassel's with you through it all out. But I, I would, uh, thank you, Marcus, but I would recommend heartily. Um, two books actually um, which have always both been a bit of a guiding light for me um morbo by phil ball which talks about the history of spanish football but not just that it sort of 
it talks about it in cultural context and that's what you need from any book about football i, I think to have a sense of the, the 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 cultural context and spain is a richly political football mm. um atmosphere so it's, it's, it's worth checking that out and also a tour by uli hesse which is about the history of german football and again oh, yeah. brilliant so vivid you know um when i did the ramble meets with him recently he was telling me that um I mean, obviously he speaks perfect English, but he oh, writes yeah. his English language books straight into English. Like they're not written into That's German and then translated. <clears throat> he writes them straight into English, which absolutely blew my mind. <laughs> that is impressive, I have to say. Blimey. Blimey O'Reilly. Okay, Andy, nice one. Well, let's move on uh, to uh, what Pudge Life is asking. And Pudge Life is saying, the four-three-three formation seems to be in vogue right now. And probably has been for for a, for a fair season or two. Uh, how can teams combat a four three three, and what formation might be next? As in, you know, which formation will be very popular? <clears throat> you know what? I, I think we've started to to move on from that already. Mm. I mean, if if I was a head coach, which I'm not, I would always set a team up in a four three three because Why is it that? makes me think of well, it makes me think of Ajax. Barcelona <laughs> and when I bring out my more conservative side it gives you the opportunity to switch it to a 4-5-1 when you've not got the ball which um, for my team given the level of coaching I'm capable of would be most of the time do you, do you think though, that 4-3-3 do you think 4-3-3 now Andy because 4-4-2 in this country certainly and in other countries as well but this country throughout you know probably 80s and then some of the 90s although a 3-5-2 was quite in vogue in, in, in parts of uh, the 90s, especially <clears throat> the late 90s, Hoddle's England, you think, mm. is playing a 3-5-2. People used to think a 4-4-2, that was probably the most balanced formation. You've got all areas of the pitch that are covered. You think, yeah, that, as much as you can with 11 men, that's probably it. Whereas now it does seem to be, I don't know, actually the 4-3-3 seems to be the most sort of well-rounded formation, if you see what I mean. Uh, and, uh, I mean, Luke and I, a number of years ago, now went to... Uh, Bristol uh, to to uh, to sort of shadow a, a UEFA. I think it was the B coaching license uh, that they were doing through the kind of mm. the, the FA and, and UEFA. And <clears throat> one of the coaches there said that a lot of uh, the, the formations that they would kind of trial out on have gone away more from a four four two, and now st- now they're kind of using a more four three three in their drills and whatnot. And uh, another. Uh, guy called Alex Inglethorpe who I think you might know he's certainly I think he's I don't know if he still is Liverpool under 18s or youth academy coach Um, but he was saying that nowadays defenders he said he actually sometimes recommends playing two up top because defenders uh, of a certain age are so used to just marking one centre forward now with your wingers Mm usually being picked up by by the fullbacks because a back four tends to be I know you have back three but but the back four is still quite popular and and he said so actually he felt that playing two up top was really effective because especially against younger players because obviously he's teaching youth academies the, the youth academy he said that was quite effective because he said that they're growing up learning with two defenders you're marking one striker whereas of course Andy when you and I were growing up it would have been two defenders marking two forwards you had you didn't mm. have help with with uh, with your striker so you you never know what kind of 
what's kind of going in and out. But do you think four three three now is just seen as that's your kind of standard template that covers all the basics and and generally is the most well rounded system? Well, I think a huge part of that is um, you know each just just like with bands, each genius uh, produces a hundred copyists, and um, I think you have to look at the influence that. Um, particularly Barcelona, but also Spain have, have, have had on, on football in the, in, in the last 15 years or so. I think mm-hmm. it's, it's absolutely huge. And um, I think because there's this historical resonance to what Barcelona do and the, the connection with uh, Michels and Cruyff, um, I, I think that's something that people have in, in mind a lot and people um a, a, a completely reasonable to to want to take from um i think the change really if you look from say the the, the dutch version of, of of three up top you tend to think of, of of wingers being involved and i think in more modern interpretations of 433 and when i say modern i would say over the last 8 to 10 years um those uh, wide players have tended more to be wide forwards than wingers, than traditional mm-hmm. wingers, um, which are in relatively short supply at the moment. I mean, I think it's interesting. We talk about and quite often how there are there are no true centre backs left, and you know, great centre backs are in in short supply. Well, one of the reasons that that that, that people say that, of course, is is the fact that the job as you touched on there with uh, Alex Inglethorpe and what you were saying, the job of a centre-back has changed. And I, I think it it takes a while for people to get their heads around that. The fact that being a great centre-back is not making six tackles a game anymore. Um, it's far more to do with um, interception, um, ball circulation and and other aspects like, like that. Um, but mm. w- when it comes to... Um, wide players yeah wingers are, are, are players that don't really get mentioned that much as as being in short supply and i think that's probably because we're so excited by wide forwards and, and what they can do i think an interesting um an interesting example of of, of players who are a, a little bit could can bring something different to a system is is what's been happening with with Bayern Munich over the last little while because um when they were robin and ribery's team you think of Robin and Ribery as quicksilver, tricky dribblers, mm-hmm. traditional wingers. But I think especially in the case of Arjen Robin, everyone knows his his key move. That every, mm-hmm. everyone knows what's coming. It's the cut inside and and shoot. Yeah. You now just can't that was stop something it. Yeah, exactly. And now that was something that wasn't necessarily perfect for Robert Lewandowski, for example. If you're wanting to get served, how often yeah. are you going to get served? If it's Iron Robin wanting to take the opportunity, <laughs> I can imagine Lewandowski and- used to tear his hair out with where Robin would be cutting inside and not feeding him. But of course, as you say, both of them didn't seem to be uh, didn't didn't seem to lack goal scoring at the time. You know, they won a Champions League. To, uh, oh, sorry, no, that was before yeah. Lewandowski. Um, forgive me, but they they certainly won trophies together. But you're yeah. right for for a forward like Lewandowski, he's thinking, can you just whip it in for a change? You know, <laughs> Robin's saying, can you duck for my, you know, shots that I've cut inside to take? Well, isn't it interesting, Marcus? How Lewandowski is enjoying this Indian summer in his career mm. into his thirties, 
when <clears throat> those two guys have moved on. I'm, I'm yeah. not convinced it's a huge coincidence, to be honest. <laughs> and uh, Kings, Kingsley Comar and Serge Gnabry, who are normally the, the, the wingers if everyone's fit, they seek to serve him. And I, I think that's that's something that's worked out very well for Lewandowski. It's not just the fact that he's more settled at Bayern and mm-hmm. he's matured in his game. I, I think those are those are aspects that have that have really changed. But I think if you go further back with Bayern, and I mean further back on the pitch, if you look at what Joshua Kimmich, when he's been at right back, has been able to do in an attacking sense. Um, yeah. You know, he's been one of their key attacking players when he's been played at right back. And it's a constant chat in not just Bayern circles, but German football circles. Do they miss him more at fullback or do they miss him more in midfield? And now we seem mm-hmm. to have arrived at the point where people think he's better in midfield. I'm not really convinced that's the case personally. I, I, I think he would still be perfect for Bayern as, as their starting right back if, if if they had the the fully fit personnel and the... The, the team and squad set up to, to allow him to do that. The other thing you've got to look at is Alfonso Davis on the other side. Now this is a winger who's become a fullback. And I think it's clear is going to be a fullback, not semi-permanently, but permanently from now on. And th- the fact that he's positioned deeper up the pitch is is something that actually atta- adds to his attack in Arsenal because people talk about his incredible pace, but it's not just pace. It's momentum and the fact that he's able to get the ball deep and then he's got space to burst into so he can build up to that moment, build up that momentum makes him very difficult to stop. And we've seen that with other players in the past, like when Jorge Jesus converted uh, Fabio Coentrao from a, a pretty ordinary left winger into an incredible fullback who ended up getting a 30 million move to, to, to Real Madrid. Mm. I think because fullbacks are becoming more and more key in the way that teams play, we're already seeing a shift to three at the back more and more. And um, yep. I think that's that's where we're we're headed. And actually, if you go back a little bit further, Barcelona Do you already think three, started a back that three anyway. will, You think a back three will become... A default. The more, so to go back to, um, uh, to, to Pudge Life's uh, question, you think the back three will become more in vogue than say the four three three, so whether that's a three four three or a three five two or a three six one, whatever it may be, I think it already is, Marcus. I really think right. it already is. And the back um, three come back. It has come back. Because it has come back. Yeah, it has. If you, Absolutely. if you remember, we I mentioned it earlier in the <clears throat> in uh, going back to the nineties where Hoddle's England used to play a back three, but you you suddenly had Premier League sides playing back threes as well. I got the impression that. Some people, correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't want to do people a disservice, but I got the impression that it was a bit, some of the managers thought, oh, that's quite fancy. Oh, we'll give that a go. But but mm. some almost played a back three like it was a back four, but just missing one and didn't really utilize it properly. Although wing backs were, uh, you know, one thinks of a, a striding Jason McAteer or Darren Anderson or something being converted. But I think... A few years later, a back three seemed to be very, very, uh, very out of fashion. And people would often say, well, the easy way to combat a a back three is you actually play 4-3-3 and then you have a spare centre back and a back three, which is just useless and they don't get used and and, and that negates that and you have an extra man here and blah, blah, blah. And and the thought of playing a back three seemed sort of quite outdated and and quite a daft thing to do. Excuse me. But then, of course, the years go by and... 
I mean, Guardiola, all his tinkering at Barcelona was, was all sorts. I mean, at times it was a 2-3-5 for crying out loud. But then, of course, in the Premier League, one big change we saw in more recent years, and I understand a back three has been seen in other places and in other times, but it was a Conte's Chelsea where he went to mm. a back three with Victor Moses playing uh, wing back, if you remember. That was very effective. And so the back three, suddenly people, oh, okay. And of course, Southgate's England played a back three in, in World Cup 2018. That was because he probably didn't trust his centre-halves, <laughs> but, but mm. it was still an effective formation. Yeah, and I think Conte's Chelsea is a very good point in this, Marcus. It's a really good thing to bring up because when he brought that in at Chelsea, a lot of people who maybe casually watch Juventus would say, oh, well, this is Conte doing what he always does. Now, mm. that's not right because Con- Conte is the is the ultimate pragmatist because people think of that you know golden trio of... Basali, Bonucci, Chiellini, and they were fantastic, of course. Mm. But he didn't always play with three at the back. You know, if if you if you go back further in his career, this was a guy who played four two four at various points. Conte was always pretty clear on I go with what suits the players I have best, and I think that's mm. right. If you're any Allegri's elite a coach, similar, would, am I right in saying? Well, and he always. I think tinkered with his team during the first part of the season at Juventus Allegri. Mm. And then by probably about January, February arrived at a point where he had his team and he had his formation for the, for the home straight. And I think that's, that's a pretty sensible way to, to do it really. And, um, you know, like I said, Conte was always super flexible. And I think with all these systems, we have to remind people, because I know we talk about tactics a, a lot more than, we used to certainly in the UK and that's, that's fine. I think that's a good thing, but they're frameworks. They're not rigid. And, you know, if we talk about the difference between four and three at the back, let's go back to Barcelona under Guardiola, because you could say that they are the root of the modern desire to play Mm. three at the back, really, because even though they went in with a back four, when they had the ball, Busquets would slide in between the two centre-backs, normally Puyol and Piquet, because mm-hmm. Danny Alves and Maxwell, or whoever's on the other side, are off, off and away. They're midfield players, basically. And mm. I think that's where we're heading now, because you've got so many um, full-backs who aren't really that interested in defending and aren't really that built for it. I think, you know, we see Dortmund week after week after week and uh, Ashraf Hakimi is a really good example of that. A a player who would be almost wasted as an orthodox right back. And players like that need room to breathe. And I think fullbacks are are, are more and more important. And Mm. if you're going that way, do you really need two wide forwards as well? Has to be your question. And, you know, always great combinations and great employments of certain tactics, as I said before, will make people want to copy. And when you look at the front two at Inter at the moment, which is a sort of 3-5-2 that they play under, again, Antonio Conte, the -hmm. front two of Lukaku and Lautaro Martinez, they are making a lot of people think. I mean, at the moment, you look at them and think they're the best front two in European football because how many front twos actually are there? Well, there will be more, I'm sure, yeah. as people try and take lessons from them and copy what they're doing. Mm. I do like a front two, I have to say. Um, but but with regards to what you're saying with with Conte being pragmatic and so on, I, th- I think 
my, my impression is, I mean, there'll, there'll always be a few exceptions and, and so on, but with Italian managers, because of their coaching and their tactical mouse and so on, you think of Ancelotti, you know, they tend to go in, right, what have we got? What can we do? Because they're very flexible and they're very, very um, well thought out uh, in, in their you know, in in their sort of uh, approach and, and their knowledge and, and, and so on and so forth. And then and suddenly I think of Fabio Capello, and he was a four four two man, Andy. Let's not mess around, was he? <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with four four two, big man, little man, when one goes, one stays. Um okay, let's uh, let's finish with this from from Hamster, who says, What do you think will be the tra- the big transfer story move this summer providing everything returns to normal? You know what? We were talking on um, OTC earlier, me and Luke Moore, about uh, maybe there would be some sort of transfer amnesty. Um, Certainly Mm. if the club seasons extend past June the 30th, which I think you have to say is probably more likely than not at the moment, even though we don't want to wade too far into the the seas of speculation. But um, I, I wonder if there's quite a conservative summer coming up um i know david cartledge has talked on on the continent about barcelona being ready for one big deal and maybe that would be lautaro martinez who we were talking about before maybe that's the guy they want to go the whole way for i think that would be really really interesting to see how he fits and especially with barcelona's um very very patchy record in the transfer market in recent years that would be interesting the other thing i wonder and again it's something that got I mentioned on this week's OTC with um, a reference to how the Euros might look differently a year down the line with, you know, which players will it be a step too far for because it's a year too far away and which players will benefit from having the extra year to prepare from it. Um, Mm. We were looking at Florian Tovan. He's missed most of this season with Marseille. Now Mm -hmm. he's only got a year left on his contract. Now, Marseille face a a big decision this summer because they've got financial difficulties. Um, He is uh, one of their major saleable assets. What do they do? Do they Mm. um, persuade him to sign an extension? Do they get in a situation where they say, well, you know what? We just need him for the rest of this year. Let's, um, Let's let him run his contract down. Or do they decide to sell him? And I think, especially in what might be quite a a tentative market, he could be one of the more attractive propositions, especially if Marseille um, do decide that that they they absolutely have to get some money for him. So uh, that's one that I'm really interested to to see how how it pans out because I know people will look at him because of his spell at Newcastle United and, say well maybe he's done it in a lesser league since but 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 uh, he's improved so much since then and I think um, he went too young he, he went to the wrong club at the wrong time and it was a move that if you knew Tovan if you knew where he was at and if you knew Newcastle United you knew from the get-go that it, it wasn't going to work out so I don't think that's any reason to judge him by that or to say that a move to him for to Spain or Italy or anywhere else wouldn't wouldn't work out because I'm I'm sure he'd be great for a, for a lot of big clubs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's just so very difficult to know what's what's going to happen. Although I did uh, find it mildly amusing when uh, Real Madrid said they might let Gareth Bale go this summer, and I thought, yeah, 
no matter what's going on, a Gareth Bale transfer <laughs> saga will appear. <laughs> you need your touchstones. <laughs> Indeed, yeah, you certainly do. Um, there we are, Randy. I think we've come to the end of our time. Thank you very much uh, for all your questions, everybody. Real pleasure um, Thank you. to hear Andy answering them, <laughs> as I'm sure you'll agree, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thanks, Andy. I-, I hope you're doing well. What-, what are you doing, Andy, then? Obviously, other than asking, answering uh, people's questions on football, what-, what are you doing to-, to pass the time at the moment? Uh, well, do you know what? I've-, I've been busy enough so far that I've not got into my classic matches. I did make... Uh, 10 minutes yesterday to rewatch the highlights of uh, Wimbledon's FA Cup win over West Ham last year because so oh, many yeah. people have been asking me what classic matches are you watching it sort of put something in my head saying why am I not watching classic matches so that, <laughs> that was the first one and I'm going to watch it again another couple of times before I get onto any other matches I think lovely old job well Andy it's a, it's a pleasure to, to be in your company if you see what I mean just online uh, as always but ladies and gentlemen thank you very much for subscribing to Patreon we really really appreciate that genuinely we really do it's it's touched us deep within our minds and souls uh, so thank you very much for that I hope you're keeping well keeping safe indoors you're following all the guidelines etc etc and, uh, and I hope you're managing to, to find some lovely ways to pass the time. Uh, until next time, though, lots of love from me. Thank you very much, Andy. Thank you, and thank you, everyone. <laughs> we'll see you next time. This was a Stakhanov production.